0: this week. On ye old Eldritch Lorecast, just another example of how a tiresome, endless internet discourse will take a great idea and churn it into mulch.
1: I've never understood the appeal of live plays personally.
0: It's high noon. Fifth Edition is a game where, like older editions of D anD D, you do not have to fight for the game to be fun.
2: Legacy media,
3: Paramount films that you call to mind that you think I better get Paramount Plus so that I can watch the bad Halo show.
0: May we? Wrap Rest in peace, animal of the land. Candela Obscura.
1: All that and more. And Ben Byrne, right now.
2: Cool, anyway, hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Eldritch Lawcast, the number one tabletop RPG and DD podcast on all social media platforms. That's right, the Eldritch Lawcast is the only social media platform that is good for your <laughs> mental health. Uh, Fingers crossed. Let's not do a study on that. Anyway, my name's Ben Byrne, and I am joined, as always, by James Hake, Dale Kingsmill, Sean Merwin. And Sean uh, Gethin said on Twitter that he would not forgive me if I did not ask you. You have to cook publicly on live television a hero's feast, Mm. you might say. Uh, What is your signature go-to dish?
1: Uh, Beef stroganoff. Ooh.
2: Mm -hmm. Excellent. That's that's an excellent answer. Dale Kingsmill.
3: I'm trying to think of anything that I know how to cook. Uh, <laughs> this is, uh, but it doesn't feel very hero's feasty. Uh, but I mean, like, one of my go to things that I cook is I uh, cook this pasta. It's got basil and tomato. It's really simple, but it's great on a summer evening. <laughs> I don't know what it's called.
0: <laughs> <laughs> James Haig, uh, what about you? Um, it's the dish I'm going to make tonight for guests. Actually, right after the Mm. lore cast, it is a uh, squash and kale pasta with uh, brown butter roasted almonds or sorry, not almonds, walnuts uh, with a with a sort of creme fraiche cream sauce. Mm. Wonderful. I I, I knew you were going to have a good
2: answer for that because I remember your cooking when uh, you were briefly... uh, I was going to say sequestered, but that's not quite the right word. Um, uh, boarding with us here in Australia. Anyway. Well, uh, I was your on. guest um, in your home. <laughs> thank you. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> Words this morning. Faults oh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah
0: when, um, I was, when I was a prisoner within the cell, <laughs> the dank cell you kept me in with a whip. Right, uh, ache, right. And <laughs> cook, Yeah, apparently. when you were
2: extradited. Yeah you nothing but Vegemite on toast. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and Tim Tams for dessert. That was great. The Tim Tams were great. Um, speaking of uh uh being imprisoned, um uh, the latest video from D&D Beyond has dropped <laughs> to tell us all about the survey results from the druid and the paladin. Uh I think I'm the only one that watched it. Uh it it's it's it they it, what we expected. The no no range smites on paladins is what people wanted, and uh, better
0: druid wild shaping. Yay. May we rest in peace, Dude. animal of the land. No I, I feel yeah. You will not be missed. <laughs> um, um, we hardly
3: did... knew ye. I, I will say once again, I really would like it if these videos were flagged a little bit more um vibrantly. I always miss when the new videos come out.
2: Yeah, there were there. I mean, there were a few interesting tidbits in there um, that uh, I thought might have made Sean mad, but I can't remember them for the life of me. So we'll have to discuss <laughs> just them be next mad week, anyway, I Sean.
3: Me? Just in case,
1: <laughs> that's my secret, folks. I'm always mad.
2: <laughs> Listen to yep. our next week's mastering dungeons to find out. Um, mm-hmm. I suppose. Speaking of uh, sad news, actually, Ghostfire Gaming has announced uh, that we are no longer going to continue. Uh, with our Fables subscription service. Um, uh, Agents of the Empire is going to be the final Fable uh, for the time being. Uh, If you are currently subscribed, next month the June edition will release uh, and we will finish off the Agents of the Empire adventure, Um, but uh, that subscription service will not continue into July. There will not be a new one. Uh, There is a link to a blog post that I'm going to try and copy and paste Right now, uh, depending on whether Hannah Hannah's Hannah beat me it. to it, never mind. Pew 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 pew. I don't know. I don't know why finger guns is the appropriate thing. Because uh, check this out the blog post. A,
3: a gunfight, high noon, and Hannah yeah. one. Yeah, that's
2: right. <laughs> yeah, she did. She uh, had that link out Girl. of the holster much quicker than I did. Um, so there's more detail as to exactly why we're moving away from fables in that blog post. If you're interested, I'll put it down in the bit below. Um, I always have to try not to, I don't know if this is a common YouTuber problem. Uh, I have to try not to accidentally ape, uh, uh, Matt Colville by just saying doobly do. Well, um, Matt Colville
3: aped it from, uh, the Vlogbrothers. So you're, you're covered. It's fine.
2: Don't even have to feel bad. Great. Doobly-doo. Doobly-doo it up. Uh, go check it out in the doobly-doo. Totally don't feel bad anymore.
0: Um, I, I think one important thing to stress with this announcement that you will find in the thing in the thing in the doobly-doo is that <laughs> after Fables is discontinued, after uh, June, I think it is, what you said, uh, you won't have to be a subscriber to get the adventures. <laughs> I, I believe that's the case. I don't make these decisions, but I believe that's the case. And 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 this is—I I think this will be a thing of of great joy to a lot of people. Uh, like I'm—we'll we'll talk about ethereal expanse uh, later on. But one thing that, that people have told me on uh, on social media is that I wish I could just buy the adventure. I wish I could just have the adventure. I wish I didn't have to go through uh, all of these hoops. And well, soon you will be able to. Soon you will have. Citadel of the Unseen Sun, and Pirates of the Ethereal Expanse, and Agents of the Empire. At your fingertips, no hoops, just get it. Just get the PDF on the Ghostfire store. It's yours.
2: The campaign settings are not being retired, indeed. Um, uh, We, in fact, uh, speaking of which, uh, we have announced, uh, kind of softly announced it last week in the most awkward way possible, (laughs) of like, we're doing this. We're not going to talk about it. Anyway, moving on. But this week, we're going to talk about it. Ethereal Expanse campaign guide... Uh, is the next Ghostfire Gaming at Kickstarter. We're doing a full campaign guide for that setting that originated in Fables. Um, and as someone who is an expert, having played in the Ethereal Expanse before, Dale Kingsmill, how excited are you to be able to get a full setting guide for the Ethereal Expanse? I
3: think it's uh, genuinely, this is, of all the, uh, the campaign settings that have come out of the Fables, this is the one that I'm most hyped about. I think it's such a cool... Thing. The idea of the the sort of astral sea between planes has been something that pops up everywhere. But I love the idea of it becoming inhabited. The idea of of it becoming territory that that can be conquered. You know what I mean? I I mm. it just it's such a cool concept. Playing in the setting was really fun. I love the idea of like celestial mermaids that are still oceanic in some way. It's all just it's all just very very fun. I think it's a, a really cool. I'm, I'm hyped to see what else is is in the campaign game.
0: No oh, thanks. And Dale didn't even have to say that. Dale doesn't even work for us. She's her own yeah. HR. I could
3: have said actually, Ben. I'm not excited at all.
0: And, and you know that, that if, honestly... if Dale thought that, she would have said it too. Because I'm the mean
3: judge.
2: Speaks
0: their mind.
2: Um, no, that was a very good answer. I was actually trying to catch you out then, uh, having played one session in the Ethereal Expanse. But uh, James Hake. Um, how do you feel seeing uh, a setting essentially that you originally authored into life uh, and then passed on to Joe Rasso, uh, who is now working on uh, managing that campaign setting into a full Kickstarter? Um, but how do you feel seeing your, your little your little setting grow up?
0: Well, it's it's fantastic. Um, When when Joe kind of picked up Pirates of the Ethereal Expanse at the end of... Of the process, you know, Joe is really showing his the chops that he's flexing now as a producer mm. here at Ghostfire by taking the adventure, which is in a very final state, and kind of bringing it to publication. Which, if I'm going to be totally honest, is the part I'm worst at. Uh, I mean, he came in at the perfect time uh, because that that setting guide and those adventures uh, mean so much to me. Uh, when back when there were plans to like really make Fables this kind of uh, you know, our own ghost fire multiverse, I saw the ethereal expanse as being the heart of it. The, uh, the, the single, uh, uh, the, the center of the wheel with all these spokes emerging out from it. Um, and you could travel from etheris into the ethereal and, and beyond that, into whatever else was beyond into the Caroline empire or to the kingdom of virus or whatever, whatever, uh, settings lay beyond that in another place. And, mm-hmm. uh, making planar travel interesting, which is exactly what we talked about last episode is really near and dear to my heart. Um, because it's so magical. There's so much room for inventiveness and exploration and, uh, really just the wildest things you've ever seen. Um, mm. I really like weird fantasy, like, uh, ultraviolet grasslands is an OSR things coming out. Uh, It's second edition is coming out soon. And I, I just love it when things are absolutely bizarre, very sort of (laughs) Conan-esque, that sort of thing. And the, the room for the bizarre in the ethereal expanses is is what I love the most, you know, smash your pirates together with, with transplaner storm giants who have a, you know, a matter eating machine at the bottom of the ocean. It's like, hell yeah. Yeah. Let's just see what happens when we put all that together. Um, So to see that turned into a full setting guide is, is, I mean, it's, it's overwhelming. The initial setting guide for, uh, that fable took over the first episode. We initially had a whole, you know, a a whole adventure planned for the first episode. And we we had to kind of winnow it down to just like a single session thing that you ran for us at PAX Australia last year, Ben, Mm -hmm. which, you know, it worked out great. It's such a lovely introduction to the setting, to the story. But it only happened that way because the setting guy got so enormous. It's like mm-hmm. the, the ideas wouldn't stop coming. And, uh, you know, eventually I, we had to plug that dam. But now I'm looking around to see where the plug is. I'm like, okay, I know some idea. If I pull on this, we'll just send the rest cascading out. And uh, release that the river. Release the kraken. Yeah, uh, so I'll, I'll find that string eventually, and we will we will tug on it, and the floodgates will open, and from there, from those headwaters, will the ethereal expanse setting guide spring?
2: It's kind of a, the story of fables that you know what started as one idea, or what started as like you know, oh, it would be cool if we did this, and then started fleshing it out in that direction. I remember Joe Russo when he was on the podcast, I think late last year, talking about agents of the Empire. And he was like, yeah, you know, we started with this small campaign guide that we were going to work on for the uh, uh, Caroline Empire specifically – um and uh, we thought maybe a ten page, fifteen page thing, and I think he said it blew out to something like fifty pages. It's exactly maybe it was what twenty pages. It was, it was something in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and <laughs> and uh, you know the the Ethereal Expanse campaign guide, the Kickstarter is, you know, it, it is its own thing. It's not necessarily Pirates of the Ethereal Expanse, which is the adventure. The Ethereal Expanse uh, campaign guide is taking uh you know details and information uh, and character options from the uh, Pirates of the Ethereal Expanse and from uh, Agents of the Empire which is also set within that setting uh, and expanding on other corners of the of the Ethereal Expanse to kind of really create its own sandpit uh, that that players can uh, uh explore within and I think making planar travel is really hitting the nail on the head there because For me, just the artwork for it, particularly in Pirates, but also that continued on in Agents, there's something that's so uh, whimsically beautiful about it and yet also feels very... twilight, very, very, um, you know, midnight kind of like not, sailing. Not on yes, so, no, waters. Yes, he
3: does. He does mean the vampires. <laughs> no, I don't mean Teen the vampires. vampires. <laughs> cursed to well, attend school forever.
0: <laughs> cursed to be a, a deckhand forever. Curses. <laughs> no, Ben, you, you struck the nail on the head because I, I was speaking with, uh, with Simon, our sort of master of products, uh, about this just the other day. And uh, something that, that we struck on was that, you know, Grim Hollow, in many ways is the is all about the danger and the fear and the horror of discovery mm. and the unknown and ethereal expanse kind of its tonal opposite is all about the wonder of discovery and the unknown because you know it, there may still be danger out there but whatever the danger is it's going to be beautiful and you're going to trust that you can prevail over it or at least y- you can get away and and create a better you that can overcome it in the end mm. Um, I, I think the the thing about the setting that invokes the most of that that sort of whimsy and that wonder that you were just talking about are the uh, are the way that portals work within it because you know it's at the heart of the planes and rather than having compass uh, a north south east west compass point um, because there's no magnetic poles the the compass attunes to the sort of planar alignment of of the uh, astral plane which. Is uh, flame word, water word, earth word, air word, and those are represented by these enormous clusters, far distant, enormous clusters of permanent elemental portals that shine in the sky as if they were stars. Because there are no real stars out there. It's 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 other phenomena that resemble the night sky, and so these constellations of ever-burning portals become these the gods of the setting. People see those. They're always there. The compass points to them. And I'm sure that if you could only reach them somehow, you would see wonders the likes of which you could never see. You could see fire in colors you can't imagine. You would hear sounds from the the ocean that are unlike any music you've ever heard. And that to me is the sort of edge of the world mythos that mm. those great uh, age of sales stories are based off of, and really any
1: great fantasy story. Yeah. Today on Mastering Dungeons, we were looking at chapter two of the fifth edition Dungeon Master's Guide, which is the planes. And we were talking about you know how they have all these sort of ideas about things you could do on these planes, but unless you make it come alive you could have just a a mysterious story happening in the town by the swamp than you do on this other plane. And Mm. what what the Ethereal Expanse does is it gives you those cool details, those cool stories that you can tell rather than just having this in-between area be the place you have to travel to get to where the cool stories are. This brings the cool stories to you in a way that is astounding and beautiful and wonderful. And that's why you should be supporting this uh, Kickstarter.
2: I, I do. Yeah, exactly. I love the the fact that the ethereal expanse uh, doesn't feel like just the, the, the stairway, the endless staircase or whatever it's called, you know, the, the, mm. the, um, Yggdrasil, it's not just the tree that you have to climb, you know, it is a, a place unto itself, um, as typified for me in the character options, uh, the astral, uh, the astral mermaid Uh, and the astral emergent in particular. I love the concept, both thematically and visual, uh, of the astral emergent. Uh, James, do you want to explain what an astral emergent
0: is? Yeah, the astral emergent is one of two new character uh, species, heritages, ancestries, whatever you want to call them, uh, that are introduced in that setting guide. Uh, There's the astral merfolk, which I think those are self-explanatory, but the astral emergent is a humanoid being that is born of the ether, the, the mystical substance it serves that makes up the, the sea. And they are not just a person that crawled out of the water someday. Uh, the, the astral uh, power, the, the ethereal expanse itself is made up of psychic power. It's, it's thousands of egos swimming together that form the very fabric of this, this silvery sea. And no one really knows where it came from. There's a lot of thoughts. We explored a bit in, in the final days of the adventure of uh, Pirates of Ethereal Expanse. Um, but when people die at sea and their bodies are cast into the endless roiling ether, the spirits, the presences that make up the sea uh, often get curious about what has fallen into their grasp. And they will, uh, they will it, rush into the new body and and crawl their way out onto the land as someone who bears the face of someone who died, but who has this new spirit within them. someone a curious spirit, not a malevolent one in the way that that spectres and the undead are, but these sort of uh, massive sort of disparate consciousnesses mm-hmm. that are just for the very first time coalescing into one mind and who, who know so many colors and thoughts and images, Because of all of the history that these collective consciousnesses gave to them, but now as a unified mind want to see the world on their own with their own eyes.
2: It's uh, such a sci-fi, like sci-fi and yet distinctly fantasy concept of this consciousness, which is, I don't know, to to me, the way I interpret it, like infinitely wise with aeons of of knowledge and experience, but, but... that hasn't been coalesced into like an individual or a single thought, and so you know, also very newborn, very um, you know, it, it just it it strikes me as almost like an uh, like a weird uh, fantasy analogy for like AI of just mm. like you know, mm. cu- not not quite human, but appears human. There's an uncanny valiness to it. Mm. I imagine an astral emergent having, you know, eyes that softly glow with the, the light of multi spectral stars and a gash in the side of their head from what killed their mortal form, that also just glows with light coming out from the inside of it and act as if, you know, it doesn't bother them or anything like that. It's not even gruesome. It's just, you know, odd and strange, um, but, but etherically beautiful at yeah. the same time.
0: And of course they have that sort of galaxy print pattern that's woven into their, their body. One of the, uh, one of the art that uh, Nikki Dawes made for this project is an amazing artist. Um, it, it shows an astral emergent sleeping. And uh, when they sleep, their skin becomes somewhat translucent, and you kind of see what's undergirding the body. Which is, it's not a skeleton of bones like we would see it, but it's but it's a, a skeleton of stars. It's like a constellation that makes up their body. Like they all have Orion within them, and they all have, you know, your own emergent will have their own sort of constellation pattern of stars. And it's just. It's such a beautiful piece of art. Uh, I'm, I'm honestly one of the most things I'm most excited for this book is to get more pieces of art of those astral emergence, uh in there because it's just so it's so visually interesting.
2: To clarify, the the setting is going to use the Ghostfire Heritage system that we've seen in previously Aurora and Valican Clans is now going to be used, reflavored Which into Ethereal theural Which I'm Aetherial so Expanse. hyped about
3: because it. I feel like. It would be so easy to do that in Aurora and then not bring it into other mm. campaign settings. But I think it's a good system. I think it's a good idea.
0: And it's so perfect for the astral emergent as well, right? The heritages in Aurora are all very put together from... a, a a variety of different parts, right? the 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 Dragon Rage event that kind of twisted up the realms of Aurora, also twisted up its peoples, and all sorts of unique individuals arose from that. With the astral emergent, you know, if you if you have a variety of traits that are common to someone born of the ether, whether that's you know the astral merfolk or the Emergence or just someone who's been on the sea for too long, uh, I can totally see. First, have a have your player build who the person was. Before they died and were cast into the waves and then let's take out a couple of things and slide in some astral traits and there you go. Maybe their body was almost, you know, shattered to bits and so they're very, very Im- imbued with these astral traits. M- the majority of their traits are astral mm. traits or, you know, maybe they, you know, a straight shot through the heart. And that's all. So they have this little, you know, a, a seven pointed star or something right over their breast where the bullet hit them. And that is the only thing you get. So many things that have been said
3: during this conversation. I deserve a medal for not bursting into song. All right.
1: I deserve (laughs) a medal. And Very the award well. um, for greatest restraint goes to <laughs> Thank <you>. Dale Kingsmill.
3: <laughs> we need to remember this when we get to the uh, the lorries at the end of the year. What are the awards called? I forgot. I think
2: we uh, the, on the, the Ellie's,
0: I think yeah. we were The there. Ellie's might have
2: been. That heritage system, I think, is also perfect for the ethereal expanse because, you know, even if your character doesn't originate from the ethereal expanse, they can originate from virtually- any setting that you can imagine or any setting that you've played in before. You know, you can import your bird person in theory if they're coming from uh, the Forgotten Realms or you can import a knight who's traveling from Dragonlance or you can import your uh, monster hunter who's traveling in from Grim Hollow. You know, kind of anywhere, any, you know, a a Janassi that's coming from a plane of elemental um, power. Um, Any character that you want to build, uh, you can build it, uh, and they will appear on the Ethereal Expanse. Um, uh, quickly firing through, there's going to be new subclasses and new backgrounds that are specific to the Ethereal Expanse. More info on the Carolane Empire and the
0: Kingdom of Iris. Uh, I hope I pronounced that correctly, Joey. So um, keep going uh, back and forth on it. Honestly, I think I, ultimately I'd settle on Ares. 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 Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, well, the, the story there is that you know we had this song for the uh, the, the trailer song, oh, right? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> everyone kept sounding like it's is like push back the irish or something then we're like we don't that's not what we want we don't want this. that's not the goal so we'll say we'll say Aris, and we'll never have that problem again
2: the uh the the trailer is is absolutely incredible yeah mm-hmm. we're, we're gonna re-release it uh to celebrate the kickstarter soon but it is an absolutely incredible it, it gets you in the mood so well and uh, just finally speaking of the the kind of piratey mood that it puts you in because it really is a pirate chant, there is, of course, also the ship combat that's coming across from Pirates of the Ethereal Expanse uh, that can be used on the Ethereal Expanse or, in theory, um, I assume, on any basic shipfaring adventure that you may be running. Um, can I just so- say,
3: when we were at Paxos, I met a, a very nice gentleman who uh, was talking about Fables and I said, um, have you enjoyed the fables? I haven't gotten to play any of them. And he specifically raved about the ship combat system from Pirates of oh, wow. the Ethereal Expanse.
0: That so. is the power of designer Sam Manel all the way, who worked with some of our subclasses in Valica later on. Um, he's he's a Kiwi. He's a lovely New Zealand uh, gentleman. And uh, I I found him because he did aerial combat for MCDM's Arcadia a year or two oh, ago. Wow. And, uh, he, I mean, he just has a mind for systems. And, uh, it, it, in fact, his, his mind is so sharp that I actually had to pull him back. I had to take some of those concepts and really simplify them down because it was so in depth. I, I sent him all of these legitimate nautical things to look up. It's like, how does the weather gauge work? How does coming astride a ship? How does crossing the T for a ship work? And he was so detailed. He, he did such a translation. I was like, this is, this no longer melds with the simplicity we we expect from Five E, and like we can go a little beyond that this is game. its own beach. But I'm like, we need <laughs> to we need to find, yeah, yeah, yeah. Someday I long for the director's cut of of Sam's shipboard rules, but like that will be a sort of you know send that to Matt Quibell, send them to, have him play you know instead of campaign for North Africa, have him play what Sam made for the first uh, draft of Pirates. Um,
2: it will be going live next month. I can't remember what I said last week. Uh, because i my i was already living in july um even though it was not near july but it will be going live in june uh, sign up to the kickstarter if you want uh, to be updated thank you butters for jumping on that for me um and uh, haha, he's the the true cowboy shootout it's master of knew. them all <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> um uh, go check it out speaking of things to check out uh candela obscura which I'm pronouncing with my, uh, that wasn't Australian, I almost went Western then, but uh, which I'm pronouncing with my Australian accent, Candela Obscura, I'm sure that's very accurate, uh, is the new streaming show coming from Critical Role that is going to be using their Illuminated Worlds system uh, and looks very kind of dark fantasy, cosmic horror, uh, uh, Lovecraftian vibe. Uh, Did did any of us, See the trailer for that? Are we excited?
3: Yeah, the tone is so cool. I'm Mm. ready. I'm down. Love the name. Love the cast. Love the theme. I'm ready.
0: I want Taliesin to narrate my life in that voice. Right?
3: Right?
0: Hmm. Beautiful. Um, It's also
3: just like, I really enjoyed the, um, the, uh, Cthulhu one shot that they did, uh, way back when that Talison ran that, um, you know, it was it was more about. I'll admit it right now, the set dressing than anything else. I really loved steeping in that that sort of tone, uh, and so I'm just extra excited to to sort of get a little little taste of that tone again. Um, I think that I mean they've always displayed that they're really really great when it comes to uh, hyping you up for a theme. Mm. Uh, I think it's going to be a really exciting sort of. Trial run of of the kind of stuff I expect to see from Critical Role in the future. We're having a uh, an ongoing arc, but not something to the extreme of a main campaign like uh, like the actual main series of Critical Role. Um, mm. And I think that's a great idea. They're they're bringing back uh, favorite cast members. That's going to really pull in a lot of people who are regular viewers, b- big fans who watch every week. But it's also going to be short enough and a small enough commitment that I think a lot of new people who are too daunted by the concept of Critical Role can, can leap on and, and really enjoy.
0: They've done this mm-hmm. before with like Undeadwood, um, which was also great. And some good gifts came out of that, but I, it didn't last in the, in the conversation for very long. So I'm hoping that with a whole new system undergirding this, they will be able to really, really make a mark with this show because it seems so cool. The game looks so cool
1: yeah, and that's what I want to see. I, I want to see this game system. I want to see I want to see it played. I want to see how well it can be taught using this medium, uh, just for business reasons. I want to see how well this game sells because we really don't know yet. People can say, you know, critical role in streaming made five e what it is. Sales numbers have not quite played out that theory of people that were watching the stream are also buying the books. So I mm. want to see if you start from the ground up, make a different game, support it in a different way, teach it in a different way, how will that affect sales? How will that affect playability? How will that affect, you know, the popularity of not just that game but all role-playing games? If you're able to do that and what lessons will be will we be able to take from that?
3: Mm. And once again, as always, I'm I'm watching for my Sport analogy, can I just pick up on how the game works by watching? Yeah, That's something I'm really going to be on the lookout for.
2: Yeah, it'll, I mean, it'll be fascinating accounting for all those variables as well. You know, I, it sounds like this is going to be maybe a simpler system than what uh, 5e presents, or at least a less number-heavy uh, system, something closer, I assume, from my limited experience, to Fate um, where it's more about, you know, changing aspects of a situation rather than, you know, pure dice rolls that add up numbers that create gates of success or failure. Um, but more kind of progressive story building is what I'm assuming that this system's going to be. But as Sean said, will will this make that style of system more popular? Will it not be as popular? But it's not because of anything Critical Roller doing wrong, but because it's a, a different style of system Will, uh, you know, will it, will it be really like sell really well within the parameters of the audience that it has, but the audience isn't there as much because it's not a main, main role, mainstream critical role series. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, kind of looking for those variables, I think is going to be really fascinating as well. But speaking of streaming things, you thought... That Hasbro had sold E1, but they had not <laughs> apparently. You
3: in this scenario, <laughs>
2: me. <laughs> uh, I thought we had reported about it on the lawcast last year that they were looking for a buyer. Maybe we actually didn't.
3: I don't Maybe
1: remember I that, put at it on the, the that. That was the case. They were they said that they were going to sell. As far as I mm-hmm. know, no sale has happened yet.
3: Interesting, they Interesting. found a
2: use for it. Uh, it seems they're going to create legacy media. <laughs> By the sounds of it, Uh, a 24 hour Dungeons and Dragons channel uh, that will stream uh, a lot of live plays, a lot of celebrity led live plays, but will also apparently play things like uh, the D&D cartoon uh, reruns. Uh, They have Heroes Feast, which is a cooking competition show, cooking uh, uh, meals from the book Heroes Feast. Uh, which sounds like it has kind of limited scope, depending on how big that book is. But hey, we'll see. Um,
3: uh, yeah. So wait, let me get this straight. So it is it is an actual television channel.
2: My understanding, and I've I've known like websites to do this before, so it's not completely outside the realm of of imagination. But my understanding is this is not on demand. This is not a Twitch channel this is a 24-hour continuous stream that when you turn it on, whatever happens to be on is what's on.
3: Right. Because the only thing that concerns me about that, I don't think that the concept is necessarily uh, that bad, but it it does strike me that, um, you know, much broader premises have, have tried to do that sort of thing and it, largely speaking, doesn't, have the longevity that you might be looking for or the uh, the profitability that you might be. I'm just thinking about things like like music videos, right? Who would have ever thought that a 24-hour channel dedicated to, like, music-themed stuff <laughs> would run out of content and then look at the state of MTV now? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's mm. – it. I mean, I <laughs> –
0: yeah, I'm
3: confused more than anything. I, I'm They're also
0: going to be showing old episodes of the D and D cartoon
1: from the '80s. <laughs> yes, yay! Probably uh, the best
3: idea they have.
1: Sorry, I, I'm I'm I'm, sure. I'm I'm confused on this too. Uh, this is what they call a fast, right? A free, what is it free ad supported streaming yeah. channel? So it's ad supported, 24 hours. It's not its own. It's its own channel, but it doesn't have a distributor yet. So, they still need to figure out if where do you go to actually watch this? Um, it has to be connected to something. Um, uh, so I assume that it will be picked up by various media companies that will allow it to be on their platform. but for for me, but I understand why other people enjoy it. One of the reasons that other people enjoy it is they are sitting at their computer talking with other people who are also watching the same thing. To me, that seems to be one of the largest draws of that, is you have a community that you are watching it with. When you move it to the television, now probably you could still get it on your computer maybe, possibly, but is there going to be this live streaming chat also available for people to communicate to each other with? And it just sort of confuses me until I say, wait, they haven't been able to sell E1 yet. But what would be a good selling point? Well, a good selling point might be hey, look, we've got a DD movie out. We've got this other thing going. We've got this very, your very own 24 hour streaming channel that if you bought E1, you could also now access. Now, would you like to buy it?
2: Did E1, I don't know if anybody knows the answer to this, did E1 have much to do with um, the D&D movie? My impression was that that was kind of paramount taking care of that and that was kind of why they were looking to sell E1 is they realised it was as cost-effective, if not more cost-effective, to just licence out to another studio rather than have an in-house studio producing their movies and TV shows for them.
3: Right. Well, I I have been curious. I mean, it... It, this is entirely speculation. I'm talking out of my butt. This is this is nothing. But certain elements of what I read about E1 last night did have the energy of like, uh, going back to sport analogies, you know in baseball where it's it's sometimes part of the trade, it's like, yes, we will have this good trade, but part of what is beneficial for us in this trade is, yes, you're getting our really good guy, but you also have to take our crap guy onto your team as well. You know what I mean? So it, it, I do wonder whether there was a thing where Hasbro was buying something else and Ewan was packaged with it. That did cross my mind. Uh, and I, I think, I mean, Ewan's name has been attached to various things, but I don't think that they had much of a role in them, right? Like even, even pre-Hasbro, there were a lot of movies and things listed that it's like, oh, this is a movie someone else made. And you are just kind of an and addendum, a, a growth uh, on the side of it. Um, I feel growth. really mean for saying that. Um, but also, I mean, Arable Cabbage pointed out in chat, uh, I really wonder why they've gone sort of TV channel style, legacy style, instead of dropout style on demand service. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. First of all, dropout already exists. Um, but also, I think a lot of legacy media production companies tried their hand at that um, sort of around 10 years ago and realized that it wasn't going to be as successful as um, it kind of seems on the surface. It, it, Dropout is kind of a bizarre success story. It shouldn't work, but it does. Um, it's, it's like a, a bumblebee flying, but, um, you know, you look at the the purchase of, of Nerdist and Geek and Sundry and their attempt to start a, a specific on-demand streaming service, usually it doesn't usually people don't want the stuff this specific company makes enough for it to float its own streaming service Disney is kind of um an example of where that works Paramount is an example of where I don't think it will work in the long run because there just aren't that many Paramount films that you call to mind that you think I better get Paramount plus so that I can watch the bad Halo show and also you know my favorite paramount films um it's it's kind of it's a, it's a weird structure to go after. Um, so I think that in some ways, doing a TV channel is a bizarre concept because this isn't something that necessarily appeals to people who still watch Legacy Media because of all the reasons Sean was saying. But also, in some ways, it's probably a slightly better idea because at least maybe they will net some of those people who do still watch TV. Um Yeah. I don't know. I have so many different thoughts.
2: (laughs) Check it out when it rears its head because I have no idea where it's actually going to appear either. They haven't announced whether it's going to be like on Paramount or whether it's going to be on some sort of Twitch style channel that just runs constantly. I have absolutely no idea. What they have announced uh, is some of the shows that will be appearing on it. Uh, The D&D cartoon is something they've talked about. Heroes Feast, the cooking competition show. Uh, Encounter Party, which is like a classic Forgotten Realms-style D&D live play, uh, celebrity-led. And then this one I thought was interesting, and I have a question about this one. It's called Faster Purple Worm. Kill, kill. And it's a show created by Matthew Lillard that, uh, to my understanding, pits a level one D&D party against a monstrous threat that they could not possibly hope to overcome, such as, I assume, a purple worm. Um, But my question is, if you're playing 5e and you just throw a level one party against a purple worm, the mathematics are going to say the party dies, right? There's no way around the maths of that if you're just playing 5e. So are they really playing 5e or are they just using it as like a, a... a facade using the popularity, the 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 um, keyword, if you will, of D anD D Five E to run a completely different style of game. Um, because I can't imagine that 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 would functionally function.
0: Okay. Well, I'll say this: um, I don't like to bring up Mike Merles because he's a uh, he's a controversial figure, and I don't I don't know him well enough to make a big statement. But one of the things Mike Merles said back when uh, Tales from the Yawning Portal came out uh, was on The Adventure Against the Giants, Studying of the Hill Giant Chief, classic 70s era D&D adventure in which a party of something like fifth or sixth level characters wanders into a, a house that's full of just like dozens of hill giants that honestly are going to wipe the floor with them. And uh, basically what, what he said is that fifth edition is a game where like older editions of D and D you do not have to fight for the game to be fun and putting characters into situations where mathematically they'll lose is a part of the fun of the game. And it's a part and it's a different type of story that five, E can tell. Now you're welcome to agree or disagree with that statement. I, I have my own thoughts on it, but I, I think to a certain degree, at least putting parties up against a fight that they're strong enough to run away from, right? They don't get squashed in a single attack, but that they are too weak to win is a very interesting type of game. And I think 5e can support it. It's, uh, it's better at doing other things, but it can support that style of play and, uh, we'll see how well Matthew Lillard and co use the system to do that. Or if it will just
1: be some sleight of hand from, from what I read, it sounds like the whole point of the of the show is to see how ridiculously, uh, terrible that people can, their characters can die in this. And then next week they do it all again with a new monster at a new party. And so it, it sounds like it's sort of, hopeless dnd because we're not we we know it's like a horror movie we know that these several people are going to <laughs> die in horrible ways but we watch just to see how gruesome it is and how complicated it could be and hopefully they can do that with great storytellers and a little bit of poetic license in terms of the rules because otherwise, it's like, okay, the purple worm attacks you, I hit, I do 46 points of damage, your character's dead. That was fun. Next. So it needs to have a lot of uh, a lot of personality injected into it if it's going to be entertaining week after week after week.
3: I was going to say, it's going to rely a lot on a very charismatic cast, and I think it's going to need a, a surprisingly light touch uh, in order to keep it entertaining
2: speaking of entertaining things you can entertain yourself by emailing podcast at ghostfiregaming.com if you want us to answer one of your emails such as this one uh which i think is a banger email i got this from lewis lewis says that they've uh, been a long time listener way back since episode one uh but this is the first time that they're emailing in um and their question i believe if i'm remembering correctly in their the the subject line of their email was like when have you had a, a game design epiphany but i found and i hope lewis doesn't mind me editorializing their question slightly here i found the content the meat of the context that they gave me to be really fascinating when thinking about game design theory because they broke uh game design theory down into 3 uh, types of players, which they said was a fairly um, dated way of breaking down players anyway, um, which might be true. It's also obviously not the definitive way in which you you can categorise the types of people that want to play role-playing games, but I still found it uh, fascinating. So the three types are gamism or a gaminist, I suppose uh, somebody who prioritizes gameplay and prioritizes rolling the dice to kill the monster and using their abilities as written on their character sheet to enjoy engaging with the system uh, a narrativist or narrativism, which prioritizes story and theme uh, and kind of epic moments and uh, character revelations and that sort of thing. Um, epic battles uh, for good and evil uh, and then simulationist, which prioritizes immersion in the character and situation. They're not necessarily going for epic character moments, but just want to really sit in the world and experience the world that their character is, is experiencing uh, as they would experience it. Um, and in their email, I believe, saying that uh, Arthurian Legend really uh, um, services all three of these as a setting because it provides – the game of fighting good against evil, fighting Arthurian monsters, and getting magic w- swords that you use to fight mon- more powerful monsters. Uh, the narrativist who enjoys the epicness and the 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 poetic story of Arthur and his knights, and and uh, Morgan le Fay and Merlin and all that kind of jazz. And then the simulationist who likes to uh, kind of experience this Arthurian world as a real place and and really sit in the experiences of their character. And I just thought those three breakdowns were really fascinating. Uh, uh, discuss.
1: These, these three categories have been around for a long time. And their definitions sort of morph over the years. I've always heard of simulationist recently, more recently. A simulationist is more about wanting the rules to model the real world and really fit what we know of physics and of human endurance and so on. So in my definition, a simulationist is someone who says, well, the rules say that you could do a 10-foot high jump without magic, but in real life, not even the world's greatest high jumper could jump 10 feet. So these rules are you know, not right, and we need to fix that. And so we get a lot of, uh, from simulationists, we get a lot of, well, I'm – I have a black belt in judo, and I can tell you that during combat blank, (laughs) uh, which is it can be enlightening, but it also can be a little beside the point because we are not playing the game of what can we do in real life. We're playing the game of we've created this world. So it depends on the games that we're talking about Uh, in a world with magic. It doesn't matter what you can do in real life because uh, we have magic. Now, if you're talking about a super spy, James Bond sort of game, maybe we could talk a little bit more about simulationists uh, versus a game. But even then, it's, it's sort of weird and these, these uh, definitions shift. So it's hard to pin it down as precisely as that.
0: Yeah, this is a really classic, like Sean said, theory of game design. It has its own Wikipedia page and everything. It's, it is interesting that he brings up that it's a sort of dated theory because I haven't heard much discussion about GNS or, or threefold game design, uh, in recent years. Maybe it's because the, the conversation has gotten somewhat diffuse and brand oriented on social media lately, or maybe there's a million reasons. But, uh, to me, as much as I love these broad categories for quick snap judgments, uh, ultimately I see them as, three different standpoints in an argument on a web forum, more than ways that gamers (laughs) like think in the real world. And I've definitely, you know, I've seen them in the real world. I have a player who is really simulationist when it comes to biology. So the way that they use ancestries in D and D are a specific way. And that the way they use monsters in D and D are a specific way, because, you know, they're a scientist in the real world. So that's the energy they bring into the game. And because I'm a storyteller, I'm much more narrativist in my way. And I, I I do that. Um, but ultimately I I think it, it 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 comes down to the game has to has to be the master of things. Uh and and I'm not talking about the the game as in it's the gamest part of the, the GNS series we're talking about here. I'm talking about like when you're playing a game, you have to understand that the number one thing you're doing is playing a game with people and it's the people that are around the table that are important, not this axe you have to grind about a specific topic. And so there has to be unity in the three things in some way, shape, or form. And I think that's what, uh, what ultimately uh, our, our valiant question asker is, is trying to get at in his discussion of uh, the Arthurian legend and how it has something for everyone. I think everything has something for everyone. You just have to know how to look for it
3: there is value to, to the theory. Um, but in the same way that there can be, I mean, this is a a big leap and I apologize, but in the same way that there can be value to like the Myers-Briggs test, you know, it, it's not that it, um, gives some deep truth to you that was, was otherwise obscured. It's that, um, sometimes our human tendency to categorize um, can, can become useful if, if we apply it, uh, with, with thought and care. Um, I think, you know, I, I'm similar to Sean, my understanding of, of, um, the, the sort of, uh, simulationist player is, is one who's more interested in reality than verisimilitude. Um, but even then, right. I think, I think it comes down to the fact that you, no one and no game is ever going to be a hundred percent, one of these things. You know what I mean? Even someone mm. who who is into reality or simulation of reality in their game is, um, you know, unless they are playing out every bathroom break, unless they are, you know, playing out every second of every day in the game world, uh, at some point it is taking on narrativist elements. It is, it is taking on storytelling techniques that are as old as time, uh, because you kind of have to, otherwise. There's no fun. Um, but also in regards to how how this question is framed, right, we're we're kind of talking about it with slightly different definitions. We're talking about whether the game is the system, the game is the story, or the game is the experience. But I think that once you start really kind of delving into it, the system is the experience, is the story. You know, it all folds into each other, it all blends into each other in one big melting pot. And, and the important thing is understanding um, how it's, it's kind of a framework for how your players or how you might interact with the game that you're playing. Um, do, do your players have more of a framework for understanding the game via story? then you might want to focus on narrative techniques. If if your players enjoy the mats and the rolling of the dice and the, the min-maxing of their characters, then you might want to engage the game on that level more than the other two because the other two are always, no matter which one you pick, the other two are always going to seep in. You can't kind of stop it. Mm. You know, even if you are an, an ultimately gamist um, player and that is your approach and you're really focused on the numbers, a story is going to emerge from those numbers. That's just how this game works. And that's kind of also how humans work. You know, um, I've said before, I, I w- humanity understands things through telling stories. Even if you talk about maths, right? The idea of positive and negative numbers, the, we wrap things in words that tell a story so that we can understand things, and that's just always the way it's going to be. And I think that's something to keep in mind while you're you're looking at um, a sort of philosophy of gaming like this. Is that um, everything is wrapped in together? Uh, it's just the tools that you can apply,
1: and it's the tension between all of these things. I think Dale yeah. said it perfectly. You know, it's the 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 system, the the story, and the experience, and how they are woven together and the preferences of the people who are at the table, the, the better you can weave these things so each one disappears and gives way to the other more quickly, the better your game is going to be. And that's why we talk about latency in games, where, where what's the time between when you say what you're going to do and what you know that the outcome of that is going to be. If you take 20 minutes because of tactics and moving things around and other people interrupting and talking about things if you take 20 minutes from when you say i'm going to attack with my sword to when you know whether you hit or not for some people that's great because the the uh the playing out of those things in realistic terms of where is your shield being held as opposed to what hand your sword is in while you're attacked could be great that could be the whole reason you play or it could be someone just left 19 minutes ago because one minute after you said what you're going to do, the story isn't moving forward. So as you design games or as you watch games being played, which is why I want to watch how the critical role game is played, you get the feel for how well and these three systems are going to be in getting that story uh, out there on the table and letting you move on to the next bit that you want.
2: The way I was thinking about it in my head is one of those graphs where you have, you know, it's like a triangle with uh, you know, each point in the corner mm, yeah. and your gaming group Kids kind chanting of might McDonald's, stretch out. We have <laughs>
3: food at home, one black coffee, yep. Great. Right, mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: exactly. Um and uh yeah, I I thought it was an interesting way to to particularly when you have players in your group that have different, you know, they 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 won't cleanly fit into any one of these three kind of categories in terms of what they want out of a out of a game but in understanding that players might have preferences along these lines may help you i think to prep your game in a way that services what they're looking for specifically uh that also prioritizes what the what the gm finds fun you know so for example, if the GM is, a, is really into um, the game itself and the system and really wants everything to be done by the rules, but they know that their players are very narrative focused and they want like an epic moment, um, then, you know, just finding a moment to bend the rules slightly to kind of give that epic moment or lower a DC you thought should be higher, um, which kind of, again, even that goes hand in hand with simulationists because you're like, uh, in a realistic world, this DC should be higher than what is represented here because of X, Y, Z reason. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, so it's just, for me, interesting to to understand your gaming group and how you can facilitate mm-hmm. for those priorities.
3: Also, we've got some really, really great stuff in chat. Sorry, what were you going to say, Sean?
1: Uh, I was going to say, encumbrance is a good model for seeing how all of this works. So the oh. gamest you know, for encumbrance doesn't want to count every gold piece or every pound or every whatever, but they want to have the game account for it in some way. So maybe they do a check that handles that. Whereas the the, the simulationist wants to count every gold piece. They want to know where everything is. And the narrativist, they just want to tell the story They want to, I have this huge sack that I'm carrying around that jingles with all my coins and they don't want anything else to, to interrupt this fun story that, that they're telling. So that's, Mm -hmm. if you're trying to still figure out what that triangle looks like in terms of game design, encumbrance is a great one to, to show those different aspects of what people might want. And I the
0: think, economy yeah. is another one. Uh, mm-hmm. Our our question asker brings this up in, in the question. It's like, well, you know, uh, of course, D&D's economy is broken. so simulationist players hate it, et cetera, et cetera. But I think those two points in particular, encumbrance and economy, economy bring in this idea of, uh, I'll call it an, a, a budget, a budget of simulationism that every game needs to account for. <laughs> because an overloading of too much simulationism will kill your game because the only reason we can simulate things in, in real life is because our brains are incredibly complex because the inner workings of the molecular universe are so I complex. I think also
3: it's worth noting that too much of any of these three things will probably kill your game.
0: Yeah. Fair point. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think simulations will kill it quickest, but, but that's, that's only my opinion. Um,
2: I was just about to I... get out the X. I was like, Oh no, gameism <laughs> definitely will kill it quickest. <laughs> Grind.
0: <laughs> um, but, but I, br- I bring this up to say, when it comes to your brand of simulationism, I think that can often be the defining feature of a game. I think if I went out right now and I made an RPG about fantasy world ep- economics, that would be its brand. If I wanted to build a game about managing how you're bringing loot back from the dungeon and was very meticulous about it, that would be its brand. Uh, mm-hmm. And, in fact, I think those game Five ideas are actually deep, pretty neat, there's,
3: you know, yeah. there's is about <laughs> managing the resources back and and forth between the dungeon and the town.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and what I think these three categories are actually really great for as a game designer is looking for a starting place for your game. What do you want your game to focus on? And the players will bring their own ideas and expectations to it. But if you start from a core with a clear idea and a clear concept that ties into one of these theories, then you will have something really uh, uh, not necessarily. (laughs) I I hate to say it will be perfect. You know, you you aren't guaranteed a perfect idea by doing this, but you will have a really clear goal. And starting with a clear goal leads to good outcomes most of the time. Mm -hmm. Mm.
3: I uh, I just want to highlight, there's so many good things in chat, but we've got one that particularly caught my eye. Hadna Fallon has been saying, uh, in Ron Edwards' original article, he spends loads of time trying to explain that these are not player types, but three makings of fun. I love that right. phrase, right? In role-playing games. In other words, aspects of the game that create fun for your players. People are not one or the other, but they might be more or less interested in one, two, or all of them. For example, from the article itself, Used properly the terms apply only to decisions not to whole persons nor to whole games. To say that a person is for example gamist is only shorthand for saying this person tends to make role playing decisions in line with gamist goals. Similarly to saying that an RPG is for example gamist is not only uh, is is only shorthand for saying this RPG's content facilitates gamist concerns and decision making. I think that's ooh. That's exactly yeah, it. I think that's
2: a, a much better way of, of thinking about it for sure.
0: And just another example of how a tiresome, endless internet discourse will take a great idea and churn it into mulch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that's a great paper.
2: <laughs> well, speaking of mulch, um, uh, this podcast will be back next week. I'm so glad uh, you didn't you say speaking to... of
0: tiresome. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, was that better? I'm not really sure. <laughs> Uh, if you've enjoyed this episode, this this mulchy episode of the Lawcast, uh, make sure to give it a like if you're watching it on YouTube or give it five stars if you're listening to it on one of the apps or just generally uh, spreading the word helps get the word out to more people about the Eldritch Lawcast. We are back every single week with another episode. If you want your email read out, you can email podcast at ghostfiregaming.com and we can have a conversation much like the one we just had. Thank you, Lewis, for sending in that email. Mm-hmm. And of course you can come hang out on Twitch at ghostfire underscore official or twitch.tv slash ghostfire underscore official. We're here at 7pm Eastern Standard Time 4pm Pacific Standard Time on a Monday or it is Tuesday 9am Australian Eastern Standard Time if you want to come hang out uh, with us in person, contribute in the chat, otherwise my name's been Ben Byrne and, and it will continue to be so uh, I've been here with uh, Dale Kingsmill, Sean Merwin James Hake, and we will catch you next week for another episode of the Eldritch Lawcast Barbara, Barbara.
3: Babada bab. Boopity boop (laughs) boopity boop. -boop Apparently, Blood Brothers cribbed doobly doo from Wheezy (laughs) Waiter, so
1: there you go. You're just (laughs) making up names (laughs) now. None of that is real. (laughs) The flippity flop did it first. The flippity flop! You haven't heard of flippity flop, Sean? I've never heard of bobbity boo.
2: Yeah, no, the
1: skull skaters took it first, but everybody knew that.